The following presentation was produced by the Buddhist Society of Victoria. Please visit our website at bsv.net.au. With seven sets of various uh, factors of the path. But the first set we're looking at is the four right efforts. Uh, that is what we're looking at now. And uh, uh, the uh, four right efforts being the effort to restrain, uh, the effort to give up, uh, the effort to uh, develop, and the effort to maintain. I think these four right efforts uh, that are defined here. And we have already looked at the idea of restraining. Uh, and the point I was making is that this strain happens mostly to understanding the problems of these things that we're trying to avoid. We're trying to avoid in particular ill will, and also desire to some extent if we can, and I'll talk more about this later on, and we do that through a sense of wisdom. And that wisdom is really just understand that these things are not satisfactory, that they lead to problems, they lead to suffering, they lead to all kinds of problems. And once you get that in a good sense, it's actually relatively easy to restrain. You don't have to do very much. All you have to do is remind yourself that these things are problematic. And once you remind yourself, it's like the mind withdraws from those things because you understand it's not a place where you can find any happiness or any satisfaction. So you withdraw from that there. So it's quite simple. It's simple in one way, but it's difficult in the sense that to really understand that ill will, even ill will, is always problematic and, and has negative consequences. That actually is the hard part. And you need to reflect on that. And especially when it comes to desires, desires for the sensory world, it's quite difficult to, not maybe difficult, but it takes a lot of uh, patience and practice and reflection to really understand that these things too are problematic. They don't give any real satisfaction. They're always going to let you down at the end of the day. I'm going to talk more about this later on. And then as you deepen that insight and understanding, then restraint happens almost automatically. All you have to do is remind yourself of the problem. And then the mind withdraws and pulls away from those areas where it sees a degree of danger, I suppose, that degree of suffering, whatever it is. So the next one of these four right efforts is the effort to give up. It is similar to the idea of restraining, except that now the problem has already arisen and I have to sort of abandon it once it has come into being there. <clears throat> okay, so this is how the how it goes. Uh, and what mendicants is the effort to give up? It's when a mendicant does not tolerate a sensual, malicious, or cruel thought that has arisen there, but gives it up and gets rid of it, eliminates it, and obliterates it. They don't tolerate any bad, unskillful qualities that have arisen, but give them up, get rid of them, eliminate them, and obliterate them. This is called the effort to give up. Yeah, so if you have some kind of bad thoughts arisen in your mind, then what you do is you obliterate it. Interesting, isn't it? You obliterate bad thoughts. 
And uh, this uh, calls for a bit of comment, because what does it mean to obliterate a thought? How can you possibly obliterate a thought? How does this actually happen? And this is kind of the, uh, the critical thing to understand here, because it's far from obvious how you can obliterate a thought. You can maybe suppress it, you can push it out of your mind, but the obliteration is, is not actually very obvious why that, how that is to be done now. But first of all, what is the meaning of the unwholesome thoughts here? You have sensual thoughts, and that is obviously just craving for any kind of sensual object. Yeah, anything in, uh, in the realm of the five senses that you crave for is a sensual thought. Malicious really means just ill will, yeah, anger, and uh, all of those kind of things, uh, including also irritation, the whole kind of spectrum of ill will. Uh, uh, from very mild to very coarse. And then the last one here is perhaps the most interesting one. Uh, uh, I don't want to translate it as cruel here. Uh, but the, and the word means uh, something, it, it's the behingsa, it is the, uh, the same word that was used by Gandhi. He had the uh, abhingsa or ahingsa movement in India, which was the movement without cruelty, without harm. It was like being harmless. So, uh, this word here, which is translated as cruel here, it can also be translated as being harmful, perhaps, or being uh, ruthless, yeah? not, not really considering the other people and how you, how you live your life, uh, just kind of going about your life without really thinking about how it affects other beings, uh, being uh, uh, walking through the forest and stepping in all the little animals and and ants and whatever without really uh, worrying about what happens to other beings. Uh, it's like being ruthless. Uh. And uh, the word ruthless in English, the word ruth means compassion. That's the original meaning of that word. Uh. So ruthless means without compassion. Because uh. a person who doesn't really care about other people's feelings, you are insensitive to the world around you, kind of cold to other beings. Uh. That's really what this, uh, uh, this comes down to. Uh. So cruel is uh, just one aspect of that, uh, but it's kind of slightly wider than that. It's difficult to translate into English precisely, because ruthless also doesn't really necessarily include all the aspects. Uh, yeah, it doesn't really include cruelty, ruthlessness, uh, but all of these things are part of this thing we call the behingsa, or hingsa in the Italian language. Uh. So these are the bad thoughts. And uh, then Towards the end there, it says that you don't tolerate any bad, unskillful qualities. And of course, bad, unskillful qualities, they go beyond the mere. The ones that you have here are the main ones. Yeah, sexual desire, ill will, and cruelty. But of course, there are many more. And when you read the suttas, they're talking about the five hindrances, for example, which include things like tiredness and lethargy. It includes restlessness and remorse, and even doubt is considered an unskillful quality in Buddhism. And of course, they are also sort of included here. They are also part of this. Uh, so that also is, you know, is to be considered when you look at these things. So why aren't they mentioned? Why are they just kind of lumped together into one category called unskillful qualities? And the main reason for that is because uh, all the other unskillful qualities that you may have, uh, tiredness, uh, tiredness, sometimes tiredness is just natural, you just, uh, you know, you have a long day and you need to sleep or whatever. Uh, but sometimes uh, tiredness and lethargy, the bad type of tiredness, uh, the bad type of restlessness, these things, uh, 
that actually come from desire, that come from ill will. These are the things that lead to these problems. And it's very easy to understand why that must be the case, because if you desire things, that natural desire leads you to act, it makes you restless, it makes you want to do things to fulfill those desires. You know? It's kind of obvious. So. Or if you have a lot of ill will, you often feel tired afterwards. Tiredness comes often from these defilements. So. The same thing with sensuality. You pursue those sensual pleasures, and they never really live up to the, uh, you know, to the billing. They never really as great as they're supposed to be. Never really give us contentment and happiness. And you feel a bit tired afterwards because you have used your mind. You might have been restless, agitated, trying to pursue these things. So a lot of these other unskillful qualities they are derived from desire and ill will. Desire and ill will are the root of wholesome qualities. So if you focus on those, uh, the other ones tend to kind of follow along and also disappear. Uh, and in fact, the, the root, the really the one root defilement uh, that is the cause of everything else really, uh, is desire. Sensual desire is the root. Uh, uh, because ill will also very often comes about because of sensual desire. Uh, then you desire something, the desire is thwarted, uh, and you don't get what you want, and you become angry because other, think other people stand in the way of your happiness and the pleasures in life, and you get upset with them as a consequence. So really, if there is a root defilement, is desire is a, is a root thing. But dealing with anger is more easy, and that's why I recommend that. In fact, you could go even further, you could say that the root of all the problems is not really even desire. The root of all the problems actually is delusion. Because delusion is what tells us that these things are worthy of pursuit. You know, we should pursue these kind of things, but actually, because they don't really bring any happiness, they're not really worthy of pursuit at all. It's just the delusion of the mind that tells us that these things are worthy of pursuit. But delusion is too profound. You can't deal with delusion directly, usually. You have to deal with it indirectly, and that's why you start off with dealing with ill will. And to some extent with desires. And then when these defilements die down, then delusion also gradually is reduced as a consequence of that. These things kind of die down together. Until one day, when the mind is very pure and very you know, rid of all these defilements, then we can also eliminate delusion itself. So this, uh, this is why we focus on uh, these qualities, and of course, if you think of a large number of mental defilements, uh, someone mentioned jealousy here the other day, uh, and you can think of maybe things like conceit or things like, uh, you know, being, I don't know, what, you can easily come up with envy or whatever, a large number of mental defilements, uh, but all of these are, tend to be rooted in uh, uh, ill will and desire. And uh, so deal with that, we're dealing with the whole lot, basically, and that's why uh, they are mentioned in this one here. So, um, how then do we do this? As I said, you look at the words that are used here, you get rid of them, you obliterate them. Now, when you read that, it sounds like you're taking out the sledgehammer and kind of crushing these things with the sledgehammer. But uh, be careful with that sledgehammer, because the sledgehammer often leads to problems. Yeah, It destroys too much, and it causes big problems, because you're using too much force, really. That is the problem they have. So again, the idea of how to obliterate uh, the unwholesome qualities uh, 
is not by using root force, yeah, using overcomputing in will, but certainly using willpower, that doesn't really work. And it doesn't work because, uh, as I mentioned before, willpower tends to suppress things. Uh, once they are suppressed, they often they come back again later on with a vengeance. Uh, also, it doesn't work because using willpower takes a lot of energy, takes a lot of, you know, if you feel really tired after a while, if you use willpower all the time. And you know that that is the case because when you go to work, you, you have a long day at work, you come back home, and sometimes you feel exhausted, yeah, because you have to focus, you have to uh, put your attention onto you know, writing things and reading things. And sometimes it may not be entirely fun either, but you're kind of boring and you have to force yourself to do things. That, and you feel tired, yeah, and you feel exhausted because of that. And that is because you have to use willpower. Willpower exhausts you, makes you tired. So it's not really sustainable. Yeah, after a while you just have to give up. And then of course the defilements really come back again as a consequence. So this is why willpower is not really ideal. There are certain situations where you have to use willpower, yeah, like when you are just about to murder somebody in there. Then use willpower. Don't murder anyone. Yeah, it's not a good idea to murder murder other people because you're going to feel really bad about yourself afterwards yeah, if you murder somebody. Yeah. It's a very difficult thing to do to kill another person. Yeah. So uh, there are times to use willpower when kind of things are really getting out of hand. Yeah. But generally speaking, we try to use wisdom power instead. Yeah. So when these things arise, yeah, what is that wisdom power? Yeah. And it is the same kind of wisdom power that you use to restrain yourself. Yeah, you remember that these things, they are a cause of suffering. They are suffering in themselves and they also lead to suffering in the, uh, in the future. They are problematic. They take you away from the path. Yeah, they make wisdom cease. It says in one of the sutras, it's very nice. Uh, this is from the Tibeta uh, Vitaka, the sutta, the Majjhimanikai, middle and saint number 19. And it says that uh, the defilements, they are panya nirodika. Panya nirodika literally means wisdom ceasing. Yeah, they cause wisdom to cease. And they lead to trouble. Yeah. They uh, uh, lead away from nirvana. They lead away from peace, in other words. Lead away from things ceasing, coming to an end. Yeah. So they are uh, all of these things. And when you get that uh, in a deep way, that these things really are troublesome. Yeah. They really are suffering. Again, the mind just withdraws automatically. Yeah. If you don't get it fully, the mind withdraws a little bit. Yeah. So you develop that perception of the danger in these things yeah, and the problem. Yeah. And then you can turn your mind in a different direction. Yeah. So my job on this retreat is to show you a little bit about you know, why these things are dangerous, and why they are problematic. Yeah. We'll look more at that later on. Yeah. And then to help you to kind of move away from that. Yeah. With uh, Anger, it's fairly easy to see why it's problematic. It leads to so many problems in this world. And with essential pleasures, it's more difficult. But uh, it is not that difficult. And we'll get back to that very soon, actually. Yeah. So that is the um, uh, the right effort concerned with giving up. You give up those things that are uh, bad, lead to suffering, and are problematic. And then we have the uh, next one, which is the right effort to develop. Uh, and um, this is the bhavana. And uh, uh, it goes as follows. And what mendicant is the right effort to develop? Uh, and this, uh, it is when a mendicant develops the awakening factor of mindfulness. 
the awakening factor of investigation of principles, the awakening factor of energy, the awakening factor of rapture, the awakening factor of tranquility, the awakening factor of immersion, the awakening factor of equanimity, which rely on seclusion, rely on fading away, rely on cessation, and ripen as letting go. This is called the effort to develop. So there you have this word immersion. You know what immersion is? Any idea? Immersion is samadhi. You define it as concentration or stillness. And when you see the word immersion, there's only one person in the whole world who translates samadhi as immersion. And that's Adam Sujato. So if I know, it's Adam Sujato. <laughs> so, uh, I don't know. It's, it's kind of, it's nice. It kind of gets to the point of what Samadhi is. If you are immersed in the experience, yeah, it kind of gets to the point. Uh, so I must admit, I don't quite like it personally. For me, it's a little bit too technical and too intellectual, perhaps. I prefer something more, uh, a bit more, has more kind of uh, emotional, uh, uh, when it related to emotional, like stillness, for example, straight away, you know what it feels like, you know what it is. Uh, immersion lacks that kind of, to my mind, that kind of sense of, uh, doesn't really, you can't relate to it quite in the same way. But it has its advantages and its disadvantages, I suppose. So. Anyway, so these are the awakening factors. Uh, and uh, uh, so these are the things that we are supposed to develop. Uh, uh, yeah, so uh, make make them come into existence. Uh, and as I mentioned before, one of the critical things here to make come into existence is uh, this whole nexus here of uh, mindfulness, energy, and rapture. Uh, these things are very closely related to each other, uh, and very often they arise together. Uh, and uh, the way to give, make these things arise uh, is often to develop what we call the recollections. Yeah, the things that. Uh, and make you enjoy the present moment. It can be the recollection of the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Chaga, and generosity, and all of these kind of things, or just enjoying being here on this retreat, and kind of doing something that is nice and positive uh, with other good companions, uh, and uh, all of these kind of things. Uh, yeah, that is what the development of good qualities is. Uh. So the first part of right effort is about how to avoid and eliminate bad qualities, uh, now it is about giving rise to that and developing good qualities is the second part there. And these, these things, of course, they are just uh, uh, the opposites, inverses of each other. Uh, avoiding the bad and developing the good, they always uh, come together in this way. Uh, and uh, just like the five hindrances are like the inverse of the seven factors of awakening. Uh, as you diminish the five hindrances, uh, you increase the seven factors of awakening. Uh, they are kind of, uh, they go together like that. Uh. So, uh, uh, we will talk more about the seven factors of awakening later on. Uh. So, I think I will just leave it at that. Uh, investigation of principles may not be very clear to you what that means, uh, but I will, I will get back to that later on. The one thing it means, it just means uh, investigating the mental content so that you know what is bad and what is good in your mind, so you understand the defilements and you're able to distinguish the defilements from the pure states of mind. That's one of the things it means. But actually, it also means more than that. Uh, and that is a sequence. Yeah, the factors of awakening are a sequence. Uh, one thing leading to the next one, all the way up. So if you get the beginning of a sequence going, uh, then the sequence tends to develop by itself. 
And then you have that sequence again that we looked at yesterday. You rely on seclusion, fading away, and cessation. Yeah, this is how these uh, factors of awakening are developed. Because if you want to have real samadhi, if you want to have success in the meditation practice, uh, then you need some degree of seclusion. Uh, that's why we come out here to Anglesey to get a little bit of seclusion from the ordinary life. Uh, and then you need some of this fading away and cessation of things. Uh, so that things uh, become more clear. The more things fade away, the more focused you are on simple things. Yeah, the more the body fades away, the more the less is left of experience. The more ability you have to focus on that which remains, which often is a very simple, uh, simple thing, uh, just the breath or just joy or, or or whatever it is. That's why these things are important. And eventually, the ripen in letting go. It says here. Vasagga parinaha, vasagga not getting go or relinquishment or, or giving up. You, in other words, craving comes to an end. Okay, effort to develop. Yeah, these are examples, but obviously some of the most important examples. And what the mendicants is the effort to preserve. So once you have developed something, how do you keep it going? It's when a mendicant preserves a meditation subject. That is a good foundation for samadhi, the perception of a skeleton, the worm-infested corpse, the livid corpse, the split-open corpse, the bloated corpse. This is called the effort to preserve. These are for efforts. So here you have the meditation on the corpse. Yeah, this is one of the Satipatthana meditations. Uh, it is not mentioned all that often in the sutta. This is one of the few places where it is mentioned. So I would, you know, you can substitute there, for example, the mindfulness of breathing. You could say a meditation shabda that is a found foundation for samadhi, such as mindfulness of breathing. You could put that in there instead. And that would be more typical of how meditation progresses in the, according to the suttas. So here, they just use the uh, perception of the corpse, just for a bit of fun, I suppose, a bit of alternative, you know, <laughs> more, more interesting, yeah, the breath gets a bit boring, corpses are pretty exciting by comparison. <laughs> <laughs> so here we have the idea, you preserve the meditation subject. Now, the word for meditation subject in the Pali is um, that samadhi nimitta. Yeah, nimitta is a, a word that you will hear very often in Buddhist circles. Usually it's, it's pronounced nimitta, but really the pro proper pronunciation nimitta is really the proper pronunciation. But anyway, uh, that word usually in Buddhist circles is used to mean like a mental image that you have. Yeah, when your samadhi gets deep, you start to become peaceful, and mindfulness arises, and mind becomes powerful. Often you get a mental image. And these mental images can take various forms. But one other form of the mental image is like a bright light in the mind, like someone flashing a, a, a flashlight into your eyes, or you're seeing the sun, or something like that. Yeah, very powerful. And this, can, this is often how it is used in a modern context. Or an imitta can be used in the sense of just seeing anything in your mind, having visions, various kinds of visions, yeah, seeing kind of amazing things. The mind is very creative, and I'm sure some of you, perhaps many of you, have had these kind of things happen in meditation practice. Uh, you see things, and you wonder, oh, what's going on? What am I, what am I seeing? 
And uh, usually what you see is nothing to worry about, it's just your mind creating stuff. Uh, and all you have to do is just to uh, carry on watching your breath, uh, and eventually these visions will calm down uh, and you become more focused. Uh, so this is how Nimitta is used in contemporary Buddhist circles, but really what it means in the sutras, it means like the object or the subject of your meditation. Uh, and here the object is the corpse, yeah, or the skeleton. Uh, so use that as a subject or an object of your meditation practice. Uh, that is how it is used, uh, the word nimitta in the sutta. So satipatthana, for example, is also a nimitta of samadhi. You practice satipatthana because it is the object or the subject that leads to samadhi practice. It's useful to know these things because uh, uh, sometimes you hear people use words like samadhi nimitta and uh, how they use it in contemporary Buddhism, how it is used in the sutta, often doesn't tally. And because it doesn't tally, it can be hard to work out what is being talk, uh, talk, talked about there. So good to know that difference. It's a fine foundation for immersion, uh, fine badaka, badra. Badra is the same word as badra, uh, so it's quite nice. So it's a good or fine, fine foundation for immersion. Uh, and uh, then you have these things, and you may wonder how do these things lead to samadhi? How can you kind of be investigating a course and that kind of lead to samadhi? And the reason is, is because when you focus on the course, the purpose of this is to abandon attachment to the body. Yeah? So here it is presumed that you already have a good mindfulness established already. If you haven't got good mindfulness, there's not much point in doing the course meditation. If your mindfulness is good, but your kind of your samadhi or your ability to focus uh, on the breath or whatever, it comes to a plateau, you can't really go any further. The reason why it plateaus is because uh, there's usually some sort of attachment there that stops you from going further. Uh, and you may not even be aware of what it is. It feels like your meditation is going well, uh, you feel like everything is going fine, uh, and then it kind of stops. Uh, why is it stopping? Why is it going further? Well, usually, and you need to investigate that. It can be very hard to see, but usually something to do with attachment to the body or attachment to the five senses. Yeah? To go really deep in meditation, you have to give up the senses completely, as if you don't have them anymore, as if you're never going to see again in the rest of your life. That is kind of scary. It's like you're going blind. Yeah? It's like you're going deaf and blind. And to do that, you need it. Uh, it, it takes time to accustom you to be able to give up these things so profoundly as if you're never going to be able to get these things back together. But eventually, you can do that. And this is one of the ways to aid us, uh, to help us to give up these things so we can take the meditation deeper enough. But now we're already talking about very deep states of meditation, yeah? And then, uh, because it has this counteracting effect for attachment to the body, uh, you release that attachment and then it allows you to go deeper into samadhi as a consequence. Uh, this is the purpose of these kind of contemplations. Uh, in particular, the, the, uh, the skeleton contemplation is can sometimes be used and can be quite a useful one uh, to contemplate the skeleton. Uh, and uh, the skeleton is kind of quite beautiful in some ways. Yeah, it can be quite wide, it can give, can give rise to a kind of a beautiful image, uh, especially when you that mind is quite pure and your mindfulness is strong then. and then the skeleton can eventually turn into another of these bright lights or whatever and then of course it becomes very joyful 
It's a very joyful skeleton there. <laughs> in, in the world, skeletons are scary. Skeletons are like, you know, ghosts and skeletons. In Buddhism, skeletons are joyful. It's kind of a, the alternative way of looking at it there. And actually, you know, skeletons, you, you know, we carry them with us all the time anyway. It's right here. It's the skeletons here. How scary can it be here? Yeah. <laughs> it's not as if it's uh, all that foreign to us. So, uh, yeah. that is how you use uh, this practice to preserve. So here, it means that you, uh, you stay with the object. You don't allow it to go. Uh, and as you stay with it, you, you have all these uh, benefits arising uh, from that. Uh, so, uh, those are the four right efforts. Uh, and uh, you will see that they are very broad. They go from overcoming uh, defilements all the way to attaining the highest kind of samadhi. The four right effort is something that you take with you on the path. Uh, they are starting with uh, overcoming defilements all the way to the end. So they encompass really the last three factors of the path in a way. In this, uh, uh, when you look at it like this. Uh, uh, and then, of course, the idea of the four efforts is that they then lead on to these other factors. So if you purify the mind in the right way, there comes a point when mindfulness becomes quite strong. And when mindfulness reaches a certain, reaches a certain strength, like your mind is quiet, the mind is quite clear, Yeah, when you have the ability to watch the breath, that's really what we mean by mindfulness, without too much distraction, then you go from right effort you go into uh, right samadhi, sa oh, no, sorry, sa uh, right sati, right mindfulness. Uh, so that is like when you move from one to the next one. Uh, but they are both go together, but there also is a movement from one to the other one. Uh, so because of that, uh, I am now going to move on to the next set of these four Dipatya The next set is the four applications of mindfulness. Uh, so we have now purified the mind, we have got to that stage where uh, uh, mindfulness is possible, uh, and that is where this uh, happens. Uh, so, uh, first of all, a bit of background again, uh, and uh, another extract from the uh, Mahaparamibhana Sutta, the Buddha's passing away. Uh, and this is just to give you a feeling for what Satipatthana practice and Samasati is on the Buddhist path, uh, right mindfulness in other words. Uh. This is what the Buddha says. Uh, I'm advanced in years. I have reached the final stage of life. I'm currently 80 years old. Just as a decrepit car keeps going while relying on straps, in the same way, we realize one's body, in other words, the Buddha's body, keeps going while relying on straps. Or so it seems, or so you think. Sometimes the realized one, not focusing on any signs and with the cessation of certain feelings, enters and remains in the signless immersion of heart, the signless stillness of heart. Only then does the realized one's body become comfortable now. So here uh, you have the Buddha coming towards the very end of his life. Yeah, he's, as I mentioned before, he's on the way to his final destination at Sinara, where he is, will eventually pass away. And here you can see he is just like any other old person. Yeah, the body is falling apart. Things don't really work anymore. You have to hold it all together by straps, as it says here. This is a, a metaphor for kind of the body falling apart, I suppose. 
and uh, he, he had lots of pain, you know, the pain only sees when he enters deep meditation. That's what he's saying here. He, here, the type of meditation is a signless samadhi. You don't need to worry too much about that. It's a kind of special form of samadhi that is attainable by arahants, by relying on things like non-self. There is a deep kind of samadhi, and only then, uh, when you go beyond the body, does the body uh, stop having all these painful feelings. Yeah, I'm sure all of you will agree that all of you get the more painful feelings you have in the body. Yeah, this is how it goes with this body. So those of you who are young, that's what you're looking forward to, is more and more pain in the body. <laughs> so, I, and for those of us who are kind of slowly getting there, we have even more to look forward to in the future. It's kind of a nice thing to remember that. Um, and uh, the interesting thing about this is that uh, one of the important things that I have always found so important with the suttas is to humanize the Buddha. To remember that the Buddha is just another human being, just like all of us are. And when you humanize the Buddha, his teachings become far more powerful there, because he was a human being speaking to other human beings. So he was speaking to his, uh, you know, to his uh, 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 people who were just like him. Uh, and uh, when you read the suttas, it becomes quite clear that the Buddha was human just like the rest of us. Uh, Sometimes you see supernormal things, uh, and some of those supernormal things are not really, uh, don't really belong there. Uh, and you can know that through comparative study of the suttas and all these kind of things. Uh, uh, but the, the message that comes, that comes out of the suttas uh, is that the Buddha was human. Uh, before his awakening, he had defilements just like uh, everyone else. Uh, uh, he had one view uh, just like everyone else. Uh, all of these things are found there in the suttas. Yeah, he had a child. Uh, yeah, you know. When he was uh, before his awakening, uh, and then after his awakening, still his body, even though he's mentally changed, uh, his body is still a human body, and it deteriorates just like any other body. Had. Yeah, and this is such an important thing to remember because sometimes uh, we put the Buddha on the wrong kind of pedestal. Uh, we put the Buddha on the god pedestal or the kind of the the pedestal of something which is completely different from us. Uh, when really he should be on the pedestal of a, a human being that has taken the human potential to the highest. That is the right pedestal. Exceptional human being pedestal, not the God pedestal. No. You've got to get the pedestal right. Make sure you label your pedestals right. Like, is this one here? This is it like a pedestal over here. Is that labeled correctly? No. I can't, can't tell from here. But remember the label matters. Yeah, it matters how we regard the Buddha. You get it wrong. And it destroys so much of the purpose and the beauty of these teachings uh, because they become less applicable and less useful for us if it comes from uh, something which is different from us. So, so uh, again, uh, I think that is an important point. But of course, what also is happening here, the background behind all of this uh, is that the Buddha is about to pass away. Just before this, uh, the Buddha had just spent the rains retreat in Vesala that we talked about yesterday. And during that rains retreat, the Buddha almost died. Uh, he says to himself, oh, I've got to kind of you know, get my act together because I can't die before I have made some kind of declaration to the Sangha. I've got to kind of say goodbye, first of all, to everyone before I die. I can't just die as far as I die. So the Buddha picks up his energy and kind of postpones his death moment a little bit. But, yeah, That's what he does during the rains retreat. Uh, but he almost dies. And because he almost dies, Venerable Ananda, who is his attendant, is very worried. He sees the Buddha being really, you know, really, really being ill and really being uh, almost passing away. 
and then he almost, you know, he feels that as if he said, I felt like a drunkard. I lost my bearings. I didn't go up from down and down from up. And uh, uh, then uh, this is kind of the context of what comes now. Because the problem, of course, is that the reason why you feel like a drunkard when somebody's passing away is because you are attached to that person. Yeah, it is difficult for you to deal with the Buddha passing away. And you can imagine if the Buddha is passing away, it is going to have some kind of impact. Here is the person who everyone has been looking to for advice, for understanding, for uh, regulations, for everything for 45 years. 45 years he's been the head of the Sangha, and everyone has always been going to him. And suddenly he's about to pass away. You can imagine the vacuum, you can imagine the problem. Yeah, when someone like that is about to disappear. It's a bit like, uh, you know, even now, even in the present day, we have certain people who are very crucial to uh, Buddhism, and when they pass away, it's very difficult, because we know what's going to happen. You can imagine a for Tibetan Buddhist, when the Dalai Lama passes away, it's going to be difficult for them, because he is such a, so incredibly prominent in Tibetan Buddhism. In the Theravada Buddhism, it's a bit more decentralized. You don't have people who are quite that big Theravada Buddhism overall, but like the Buddhist society of WA, we have Ajahn Brahm. If Ajahn Brahm is gone, then it's going to be different. Yeah? It's going to be scary. What's going to happen when he goes? Is everything going to collapse? Maybe. Yeah? Maybe that's the end of things. Maybe everything is going to collapse. Who knows what's going to happen? And this is the idea of impermanence, things being unreliable. We don't know what's going to happen next. And this sets the context for what the Buddha is about to say now. Yeah? So this is kind of the background for this. And um, so uh, the Buddha then says that the body is the body is falling apart. So Ananda, be your own island, your own refuge. We know other refuge. Let the teaching be your island and your refuge. We know other refuge. And how does a mendicant do this? So before I go on about how this is done, I think you know already how it's done, but. Uh, uh, this is such an important point. Yeah, the idea of being your own refuge, you know, or the refuge, uh, taking the Dhamma as your refuge. And the point of this is that uh, uh, the external world, uh, everything in the world around us, is inherently unreliable. Uh, everything, yeah, everything you experience in this world. Uh, and we are so immersed in this world of the five senses, uh, it's pretty much all we know. Uh, and perhaps only occasionally when you go on a meditation retreat uh, and you withdraw a little bit from that world, you withdraw into yourself, but you get some respite, uh, a respite from that world of the five senses. Uh, yeah, we're so immersed in it, it's almost everything that we know. But the problem with that world is that it is so utterly unreliable. Uh, and it's useful to contemplate a little bit to the degree to which it is unreliable. You, you know, one of the uh, a very superficial way of saying that is just when you kind of watch the news on TV or something like that, uh, and then you see the news and you think, oh no, what's going on in this world? What's going on with the environment? Uh, what's happening with all the plastic in the ocean, with all the whale that are kind of full of plastic and these kind of things? Uh, it's kind of very unpleasant that when you see that. Uh, or you see that perhaps, perhaps there are certain politicians you don't like, you think, well, these politicians are getting elected. All they're doing is messing up the world even more. Yeah, and you kind of get upset when you see some of these things on TV. And, or you read about it in the paper, or wherever you get your information from. 
And that already shows you the problem with the world outside. It is inherently unreliable then. You expect the world to go in a certain way, you expect the politicians to be wise and clever, but the politicians are often just a bit like us. Yeah? They don't have sometimes they're a little bit smarter in some way they might be more stupid, who knows? But they're a bit like us. And they try their best perhaps in their own little ways to run the world in the right way. But because ultimately they are a bit clueless, just like all of us, uh, it tends to go, often it goes wrong, sometimes it goes right. Uh, the point is, we don't know what's going to happen with the world. The world is out of control. We can't control it. We have to expect the world to do weird things. Uh, sometimes it goes well, sometimes it goes wrong. But every time you open a newspaper, every time you turn on the television, uh, you should expect something bad to happen, yeah? Because that is the nature of things. Something you don't like, yeah? And this is just begins, yeah? It's a starting point for understanding how unreliable everything is. It's never going to go the way you want it to go. Why do you get upset when you see something in the world that goes against the way you want it to go? And the reason is because you're taking refuge in the world. Taking refuge in the world means you are expecting things uh, in the world, you're expecting the world to go in a certain way. Uh, that's what taking refuge in the world uh, means. Uh, but taking refuge in the world is foolish. Uh, it is foolish because it is inherently out of control. So this is just a, uh, a beginning point for understanding that uh, uh, if we uh, rely on the world outside, uh, we are asking for suffering. Uh, yeah? So every time you uh, had some kind of expectation of the world, you're really asking for suffering here. That is just the beginning. That is kind of the big world outside there. But it is equally true of your own personal world, uh, the world of your family, the world of your work, the world of everything around you that you own, all the things in your life. But all of those things are equally inherently problematic, yeah? equally inherently out of control. Uh, and ultimately, everything is going to let you down there. Uh, all of these things have to disappear, gradually they decline, gradually uh, people die, they uh, divorce you, they let you down in one way or another, eventually your own body lets you down, yeah? eventually you're going to have to die. So everything in that physical world basically has to let you down in the end. So why is it then that we still keep on looking for so much happiness for so many things in that external world? Why is it? And the reason is because we haven't really reflected on these things properly. We haven't really taken it on board. We haven't understood the Buddhist idea of impermanence. This is what this idea is, that everything is inherently unreliable. And once you get that, you start to look for your refuge in a different place. You can't take refuge in a place that is always going to let you down. That's madness, because that refuge will not actually work out. You take refuge somewhere else. And that is what the Buddha is saying here. Be an island unto yourself. Be your own island. Take the Dhamma as the island. That is where your refuge should be. Yeah, you go into yourself. You use meditation practice. You pursue a spiritual path in life. That is where the refuge is to be found. And in a sense, it is very obvious that this is true. I'm sure all of you can relate to what I'm saying because it just is. It's obvious that, that this is the way the world works. But notice your reactions. Yeah, when you go back home or when you think about things going wrong or whatever, notice your reactions. And then when you notice, see that you are a bit upset about something, yes, understand that you're taking refuge in the wrong place. 
You're asking from the world what the world can ever give you, which is one of those things that Adam Brown likes to say. And it's a beautiful little saying here, because actually the world can never give you those things that you are seeking from it there. So how do we find that refuge uh, within ourselves? And this is then uh, what the Buddha uh, says next. So how do you do this? How do you, how can you be an island, uh, your own island? It is when a mendicant or anyone meditates by observing an aspect of the body, keen, aware, mindful, rid of desire and aversion for the world. When they meditate, observing aspect of feelings, an aspect of mind, an aspect of principles, keen, aware, mindful, rid of desire and aversion for the world. That is how a mendicant is their own island, their own refuge. We know of the refuge. That, that is how the teaching is an island, their refuge. We know of the refuge. So here you are practicing uh, sati. you're practicing the four satipakanas, and, and one way of doing that is to practice mindfulness of breathing. And yeah, it's one of the main satipakana methods. Uh, and uh, when Satipatthana is well established, it is like you go inside yourself a little bit, inside your own cocoon, yeah, and you kind of, the world outside becomes less important, your body, all of these things kind of recede into the background. They don't really matter anymore. Yeah. And you actually do feel a bit like a refuge within that. Yeah, you are inside of yourself, but you feel kind of secure from the external world uh, because you have another source of happiness, another source of uh, uh, he is another source of all of these positive things. Uh, it is within yourself. Uh, so when uh, the meditation works, uh, yeah, and you start to feel joy and happiness and all of these kind of things, uh, you really are uh, finding that refuge. Uh, and uh, one of those uh, nice sayings by Ajahn Shah, Ajahn Shah being of course Ajahn Brahm's teacher, one of the most famous forest monks in Thailand in the 20th century, and he said that uh, meditation with samadhi is your real home. This is where this is your home. This is where you find real refuge from the world. Yeah, not just your ordinary home, but your home inside it when you practice meditation in this way. Yeah. So that is where the deeper your meditation goes, the more powerful that refuge is. The more liberated you are from the world outside it, because you are starting to find happiness in new places, in places where you didn't even know there was such a thing as happiness. And then the impermanence of the world, the problems outside, they don't bother you so much anymore. You still do your little bit to help the world, you do what you can, but you realize that you can only do so much. And for the rest of it, you have to let it go, and you have to find a refuge elsewhere, because it is inherently out of control. So just briefly, what are these four Satipatthanas? Because uh, this is, I think, the only place where we come across them. Uh, just to very briefly just uh, uh, comment uh, on what is mentioned here. So you observe an aspect of the body. Uh, yeah, this is a nice translation for Kaya Kaya Nupasi, which is often translated in weird ways, like you, you, observe, the, you observe the body as a body. Uh, uh, but an aspect of the body is good. Uh, it means that there are a number of different exercises you can do. So you focus on one aspect, the breath, the 31 parts, the four elements, that kind of thing. Uh, and then you have this uh, 
adjectives here that describe how the practice is to be done. Yeah, you are keen, aware, mindful. And uh, keen here is atapika. This means like you have energy. Yeah, you have effort. Atapika is a word which is almost synonymous with energy and effort. Uh, energy being virya and effort being padana. And it's somewhere in between those two words. Uh, uh, the difference between effort and energy is that effort means that you are applying yourself, uh, whereas energy is a natural, uh, natural energy in the mind that occurs uh, when you reach a certain stage of your practice. Yeah, one is applying yourself; the other one is just the energy is already there. You don't really need to apply yourself anymore in the same way. Uh, and atapi is somewhere kind of in between those. Uh, so already at this stage, you have a degree of energy in the mind. Uh, the, the reason why you have energy is because the defilements have largely been subdued, yeah, they're not so strong anymore, and when the defilements are gone, the energy comes automatically into your mind. The less defilements you have, the more energy you have. And this is why people who have got a long way on the path, they have lots of energy to them. You can see some people that are bubbling with energy less. Those are the people who are, uh, usually they have less defilements, that's why you have more energy there. Uh, you are aware, this is uh, Sampajanya, and the word Sampajanya is an important one in the Buddhist practice, uh, and it means that you are aware of whether the practice is heading in the right direction. Uh, yeah, it is often said in the suttas, you are aware of the suitability and aware of the purpose, uh, so you know whether you actually are applying your mind in the right way. If you're watching the breath, you know, am I watching the breath correctly? Is it leading to the right results? Or am I sitting here thinking about all sorts of things? Yeah, and if you know that you're watching the breath and you're doing it in a kind of nice and easy way, in the right way, then the Sampajanya is what informs you that you're doing things in a way that leads towards the goal, that leads towards a more profound states of meditation. Sampajanya is like a Wisdom aspect, awareness and wisdom coming together. You know what you're doing there. Sampajanya is also very important in ordinary life. Yeah, the things that you're doing in ordinary life are they suitable? Are they appropriate? Yeah. So uh, you know, there are many things that are not appropriate and not not going to lead to wholesome states. They're going to lead to all kind of problems. So you need to distinguish that and you know whether you're doing the right thing or not. That's Sampajanya. Then you have mindfulness. Sakimata. Yeah, so you have to be mindful to practice Sama Satina. So this shows that mindfulness already has to be established before you can do Satipatthana practice. Yeah, so you establish mindfulness first of all, then Satipatthana comes after that. And this is why foundations of mindfulness is actually a, a wrong translation because it gives the wrong idea of what Satipatthana is about. And then you are rid of desire and aversion for the world. And uh, what this means, it refers back to the uh, sense restraint that we talked about yesterday. Uh, yeah, the, uh, because the sense restraint is what actually eliminates that desire and aversion for the world. So when you come to Satipatthana practice, when you come to Samasati, that has already been eliminated. And that's why it says here, rid of these things. Uh, so it refers to uh, desire and aversion in relation to the five senses. Uh, that's what it refers to. Uh, yeah, you don't have that desire and aversion anymore. Uh, 
Uh, and uh, this refers to fairly coarse aspect. It doesn't refer to the very refined things. Yeah, there are very these these things come in very refined forms, like you know attachments to the body, perhaps that you cannot let go of as the meditation deepens, etc. This is more like the coarse things, the things that you restrain in daily life but to avoid a strong uh, ill will and desires to arise. So your mind is quite even. So when you come to the meditation, your mind is already quite even, and then you just follow along from there. So the world here refers to the world of the five senses. The Pali word is loka, and the word loka in Pali is used almost exactly as we use the word world in English. Now when we say the world in English, it can mean many different things. It can mean the planet, it can mean humanity, it can mean the universe, depending on how we, how we use it. And it's exactly the same in, in Pali, so we have to... Um, you have to kind of specify, but sometimes it means just the world of the five senses, yeah? and that is one of these worlds, and that is what it seems to mean in this particular context. So this is gives you some of the information you need to understand what Satipatthana is all about. Yeah, these are the kind of preliminaries that you have to have in place for Satipatthana practice really to work. Yeah? And then you can start to understand why virtue is so important. You have to be rid of aversion and desire for the world. Well, that happens through virtue. It happens through being, living a moral life. It happens through the five precepts. It happens through being kind. It happens through being compassionate to other people. And also through a certain degree of restraint. So you stop yourself from getting angry and all of that. So virtue is absolutely fundamental. Without that, there's no way that you're going to have success in meditation practice. And it's so important to remember that. And very often it is not taught properly. Very often you kind of just put down on the seat and say, told, meditate, watch the breath. And you said, yes, sir. But you're not actually given any background information. Not really told how this is supposed to happen. What is the context? And the context is that virtue is one of those contexts. There is another context. I'll come to that later on then. But uh, for now, that is uh, the context that you require. And uh, uh, then, uh, uh, so you observe the body in this way, and you also observe feelings in this way. Yeah, I'll, I'll show you how this works in practice later on. It is not exactly obvious how you are supposed to uh, observe the feelings. Uh, but uh, in, in context of Anapanasati, watching the breath, it becomes very obvious uh, what you're supposed to do next. Uh, you're supposed to watch the aspects of the mind. Yeah? So again, uh, it is not exactly clear how we're supposed to do this, uh, but in the context of Anapanasati, mindfulness of breathing, uh, it becomes very obvious what we are supposed to do. Uh, and the last one is uh, aspects of principles. Uh, and uh, uh, principles uh, uh, here means, largely it means uh, causality. Uh, it means that we understand how things come into being, and especially the things that we are concerned about are defilements, the five hindrances, how they come into being. Yeah, what is it that gives rise to these things? And the more we understand the cause of and condition conditioning process, the more ability we have to overcome these things. Yeah, and the same thing then with the seven awakening factors, we understand that also in yeah, in terms of causality. So we understand how these things come into being. What is it that causes mindfulness? What is it that causes pity and joy to happen? All of these things. 
and then we have an ability to uh, give rise to these things because we understand this. Uh, and all of this happens as part of meditation practice. Yeah. So part of the meditation practice is just to watch the breath. Then, but an important aspect of the meditation practice is also to contemplate afterwards how the process unfolds. And you may have noticed, I often say at the end of the guided meditation, reflect a little bit on what is happening there. Because when you reflect, you actually understand how it works. What is that you understand? What you understand? Now I feel peaceful. How can I be peaceful now? What did you do before? And then you realize that you just relaxed, you just didn't do anything in particular, and suddenly peace arises out of that. So you start to understand the nature of letting go. You start to understand the kind of perception that leads you in the right direction. Yeah? This is what you should look out for at the end of the meditation practice. And then you start to understand what is happening there. This is part of this idea of an investigation of principles, so understanding the causality of these things. These things are very practical, and if uh, they sound theoretical, then that is my fault, I'm not making them practical enough, uh, but they're actually very practical. Uh, these are the things that you apply in your meditation practice. Uh. Okay, so let's just finish off this uh, paragraph. Uh, and uh, 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 the Buddha says that's how you have this uh, teaching as your island, the teaching as your refuge. And of course, the reason why the teaching is your refuge is because you are using the Dhamma to guide you all along. So you are your own refuge by going inside of yourself, but you use the teaching as a guide in, in, in all of this. Uh, whether now, after I have passed, uh, any one who shall live as their own island, their own refuge, with no other refuge, with the teaching as their island and the refuge, with no other refuge, those mendicants of mine who want to train shall be among the best of the best. And uh, the idea there is just that if you practice Satipatthana properly, and you do the mindfulness of breathing in the right way by investigating all of this, then you will have success, yeah, and you will be a light in the world, and you will help others to also practice the same path. And what a wonderful thing that is, and that is what the Buddha is saying here. Okay, so that is all for now, a little bit of Satipatthana practice, and let us continue this at 3 o'clock this afternoon. I'll see you again at 3 o'clock.